Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. I'm Bryce Waller, one of the pastors here at UCB, and if you're new this morning, you're not the only one because uh, I and my family are new as well, and so we are uh, now two weeks uh, into life here in Bogota, getting settled, and so if you're new, we'd love to get to know you as well and to walk this journey along with you, and I know that this church is full of people as well who are a few steps ahead and who can help as well, and so uh, welcome to uh, worship here at UCB. Uh, I don't know about your kids, but mine uh, love to hear the stories about when they were born. They want to know where we were living, uh, what the doctor's name was, what time we went to the hospital, and particularly they want to know why we chose as parents the names that we chose for each of them. Uh, there's a, uh, I'm sure your family has the same little stories, little anecdotes about why you've chosen the names for your kids. And so uh, there's something about the stories that surround our birth and the early few months of our life that help us understand something about who we are. They help us uh, be grounded in a particular way. For example, our oldest son, Liam, was born in Montana uh, when I was living there doing an internship right after seminary. And uh, we left shortly after he was born, but his birth there uh, gives us this little tie to the state of Montana that we didn't have uh, before then and always will tie us there in some way. Uh, And the story that we have today in our scripture text of the birth of Moses is, uh, is very similar. Uh, it's similar in that it, uh, it, it helps us understand something about the way that God works and helps us understand the life of Moses, which is the, uh, begin to understand the life of Moses, which is the story, that the uh, sermon series that we're in right now. And like a lot of the birth stories that we see in the Bible, it's kind of weird, Right? This is not uh, a mom who's had all kinds of prenatal care with sonograms and regular trips to the OB-GYN. This is, uh, goes to the hospital, delivers, and takes home this baby in a car seat that's been approved by all of the agencies and so forth. This is uh, not only the ancient world, the second millennium BC, but it's a birth that takes place under the threat of death. And so, but it's extraordinary, not just from the things that happen, but because it's extraordinary because of the extraordinary theological truths that it communicates to us. And so let's read uh, the birth of Moses from Exodus chapter 2. And I invite you to stand, please, as we read God's word together from Exodus 2, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. 
When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us by the power of the Spirit to understand your word. Take this story that was recorded many thousands of years ago and bring it into the present to remind us of your character, to remind us of the way that you love and care for us even today, many thousands of years later. And most of all, we pray that you would illumine the work and person of Jesus through it. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are times in your life that I know that you've experienced where everything seems to be running smoothly. Uh, Work rocks along without much turbulence. Marriage is strong. Kids are in great places. The bank account is full. You are, in the words of our our culture today, crushing it. Um, I saw a book called Crushing It on Pastor Lupton's shelf that he left for me. So I guess that's his expectation. Uh, But then there are the other times of life uh, where things look a little different. It feels like uh, you're carrying a grocery bag home from the store and it's wet at the bottom and it just busts open and then all of your groceries are on the sidewalk and the cans are rolling into the street and you've got a dog you're trying to manage as well uh, while you're doing it. I don't have to describe the details of those to you but because you know what they feel like. Uh, They hurt. And they hurt not just because they're difficult things that happen to you, but they hurt because they raise questions in your heart, if you're a believer this morning, that you address towards God. Questions like, is God really at work in my life in this type of a circumstance? Can God really take this type of difficulty and transform it into good like his word promises that he he does? We believe that God's in control. We confess that God's in control. That's a theological truth that we know. But oftentimes when it comes to the actually living out of that truth and trusting God in the midst of those kinds of circumstances, it's hard. It's difficult. It doesn't take a lot of faith or to trust in God when things are rocking along and going well. But when things fall apart, when it feels like the center is not going to hold in your life anymore, that's when it, that's when it requires faith. That's when it requires us to trust him. The question, this type of question has been posed in a number of ways throughout history, but one way it's been put is this. Either God can be good or God can be in control, but he can't be both. Because if bad things happen to me, then either God is in control and not good because he doesn't let good things happen to me, or he's good, but he's not fully in control because he's just, he's, he doesn't, these bad things slip through the cracks. And we, even though he's good and has good intentions towards me, he can't stop the bad things from happening. And so it's, it, as Christians, we're forced to reconcile those two things. Can God be both good and fully in control of every detail of our life? Can he work all those things for our good? Well, in the story of Moses' birth that we just read, 
uh, we, God gives us a glimpse into the way that he works with us in those moments. Uh, and this story is full of small details that teach us that even in the dark moments of our life, there is a loving and powerful God that is at work for our good. And not just our individual good, but our corporate good as a church and for the good of the world. And by good, for working for our good, I don't necessarily mean for our comfort, right? Sometimes that's what we think. If God is at work in, for, if for life in my, uh, at work in my life for my good, then things will always feel good. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that God is at work for our spiritual good, for our ultimate good, for making us more like Jesus. And so three things I want us to see this morning, three unlikely things in this story that God uses for the good of his people. Three things that when they come into our lives, they tend to push us off balance and make us think, whoa, God must not be at work. Three things like that, that he nevertheless works for good in the life of Moses and ultimately in the life of his people here and in our lives today. My hope is that as we see these things, we would begin to develop a calm to develop a steadiness of our souls in those moments when life seems to fall apart. So let's look at each of these. First, God uses our faltering obedience for our good. He uses our faltering obedience for our good. Just like in our families, Moses' Moses' mom and dad would have told him this story. Moses is writing these words, remember? And so the only way he would have known them is if his parents would have told him, hey, here's what it was like when you were born. And his mom and dad were both from the tribe of Levi, which is the tribe from which the priests in the Old Testament came. And we know Moses had two older siblings, at least two older siblings, Aaron, his brother, who ends up being sort of his right-hand man, who we'll get to know a little bit more later in the series, and an older sister named Miriam, who's the one who follows Moses in this story when his mom puts him in the basket in the Nile. And so Moses' parents were not new parents. They had, uh, children, al- they had children already, and so they, were, they, ha- they knew what it was like to be parents. But Aaron and Miriam, we suppose, were born before Pharaoh had given the order that all the Hebrew ba- baby boys should be thrown into the Nile that we read about last week. So they were safe, but Moses wasn't. Moses was born under this edict, and so his parents had to make a choice. And like all parents, Moses' mom and dad were mixed. They were filled with good and bad, courage and cowardice, righteousness and sin. And we see both of those emerge in this story. The first thing that Moses' parents do is they hide them, right? They, they had been told by the king, you need to throw any baby boy that's born to you into the Nile. But like any parent, they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to throw our, our child into the river to kill him. And so they, he was beautiful, the text says. And so I'm sure that helped. Uh, so they, they hid Moses. They hid him for three months. And that was a courageous decision. That was a, a, a good decision that they made. That was the right thing to do. But after three months... They can't hide baby Moses anymore. Those of you who've had kids, you know that three months is is an important milestone in the development of children. They begin to develop a personality. They can recognize their parents as opposed to strangers. They can grab things and they grab their toes and they begin to laugh and smile. And these are all things that, that begin to develop right at three months. But it's just at that point that his mom, maybe it was too painful to now see this child that was developing into his own person 
but for whatever reason, she decides to give him up, to effectively comply with the king's edict, and to put him in the Nile River. We don't uh, know where his dad was. It's not, he's not mentioned in the text, so either he's died within those three months, or he's just checked out, or he's just, or maybe maybe his mom's doing this without asking her husband. But whatever it is, the case he's not involved, and uh, so she makes him a boat, and she makes it out of the reeds that the Egyptians used to to make paper, to make papyrus. They're about ten feet tall and about as big as your finger. And, they would, and she used bitumen, it said, which was kind of like an asphalt of the ancient world to, to put it together. And then the pitch that the text mentions is a waterproofing agent that she would have put on the outside. So she took care to make this thing. But it also had a lid. I don't know if you'd caught that. But when Pharaoh's daughter finds it, it says she opened it and saw that there was a baby inside. And so what this boat looked like was more like a coffin. And Moses' mom, you notice, she's, she leaves. She puts the boat in the water and she's gone. And so I don't think that she expected to ever see her son again. She left him there. Miriam, as her sister, his sister, stays back, but she, the mom, was giving him up for dead. But listen to the way that the New Testament author to the Hebrews looks back on this story in Hebrews 11, that famous chapter where he lists all these famous uh, believers in the Old Testament. Listen to the way that he evaluates uh, Moses' parents. He says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. He commends them for their faith in hiding Moses for those first three months, but he doesn't mention her putting him in the river. But the encouraging thing is, is that from the perspective of the New Testament, there are, that God's inspired assessment of their life is one of faithfulness and not of failure. He doesn't highlight, but by the way, they did this other thing that was not so good. They, he highlights their faith in defying the king's edict and hiding Moses. And the other interesting detail that it doesn't come through in the English, but Moses, as he's writing this story, he chooses a particular word for the boat that his mom built. And that word is ark. The same word that he wrote back in Genesis when he, when, when he just told the story of Noah's ark, that's the same word that he uses for the boat that his mom built to leave him in the Nile. And so what Moses is telling us about that here is that what his mom had designed as really a place where her son was going to die, God used as a new Noah's Ark to begin to deliver a new people of God, pulling them out of the water just as he pulled the people of God out of the water in Noah's day. Here he is again, redeeming his people, pulling them out of the water in a new ark. So God chooses this instrument of death to make it into an instrument of life. And friends, just like Moses' parents, our lives too are a mixture of sin and righteousness, a mixture of good and evil, a mixture of faithfulness and failure. And if you're a parent and you know exactly what that feels like because there's days where you feel like, hey, I'm not doing so bad. And then there are other days where you feel like, my goodness, is this my first day as a parent? And we struggle. This week, just our, our, our own family 
As we started school on Tuesday in a new country, new language, all of those things, we had those moments where the kids came home and they were happy and we thought, hey, we didn't do so bad this week. Good choices. And then the next morning, uh, we have tears, we have uh, difficulties, we have like, oh my gosh, we, we're faced with all of the, uh, uh, the patterns and, and, and sins and failures uh, uh, that we've had in the past. And when I say our sins and failures, I particularly mean my sins and failures as a parent and our shortcomings. We're faced with all those from one day to the next. And so the encouragement here is that, that as God looks at us, he uses our, our faltering obedience for his purposes. Uh, it doesn't mean that we uh, can just dive into sin because, well, God's going to use it for good anyway, so just who cares? No, we ought to strive for righteousness. We ought to repent of our sins. We ought to seek to grow in grace. But for those moments when we fail, those moments when we fall, we can be assured that God will use those for his good purposes in our life. So he uses our faltering obedience. Second thing that God uses that can tend to push us off balance is that God uses the best efforts, even the best efforts of our enemies for our good. Even the best efforts of our enemies, he uses for our good. In order to understand this story, to get the full impact of it, we have to know a little bit about the kingdom of Egypt during this time. They were the unquestioned superpower of the second millennium B.C., They had a kingdom that stretched in the south from modern-day Ethiopia all the way to modern-day Turkey. And so if you got in a plane today and you flew from the south to the north, it would take you about three three to three and a half hours to fly that distance. It was a big kingdom. They controlled all the, the major important trade routes. So they were wealthy. They were powerful. They had all the technology. Think about the pyramids. Uh, They had uh, all the art, the warfare, the armies. They were the superpower of the world. And here, the king of that powerful nation is the one who said, hey, what I want is that all the Hebrew boys be thrown into the river. And this is not a king that hears no very often. His dynasty goes back over a thousand years. And so this is a guy who's in charge. He says something and it happens. And so this guy doesn't get defied very often. But I want you to notice what happens. Moses' mom puts him in the river, and it isn't just some random Egyptian that comes, on, or comes along and finds uh, the boat that she had put him in. Uh, it's the daughter of the Pharaoh who's trying to exterminate them. Daughter of the Pharaoh who's trying to exterminate them. And she knows what she finds, doesn't she? She pulls him out of the water and she says, this is one of the Hebrew children. Because she knows that her dad has said any Hebrew male ought to be thrown into the river. And so she supposes that a baby she finds in the river must be one of the Hebrews. And so out of nowhere appears Miriam, who has followed Moses along, uh, along the river. And with great courage, she goes up to Pharaoh's daughter. And as a slave girl, speaking to someone in the royal family, says, Excuse me, ma'am, but I noticed you just found a baby in the river. Would you like for me to go find a nurse for your baby? And miraculously, she says, yes, Miriam runs back and gets her mom, who must be beside herself because here her daughter's back and says, guess what? Pharaoh's daughter found Moses or found the baby, and now she wants you to come nurse him. So she goes, Pharaoh's daughter tells her this, and and listen to this carefully. She says, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. I will give you your wages. 
the money and the power of the greatest kingdom in the world that is trying to use that money and power and authority to crush God's people is the money that is paying Moses' mom to nurse him. Pharaoh, his own household, money from his own coffers is feeding the man who will 80 years later inflict his nation with plagues and upend his entire kingdom, drown his entire army in the Red Sea. Pharaoh's own money is paying for his own downfall. In the same way that Joseph, at the end of the book of Genesis, could tell his brothers who had left him for dead and sold him into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Pharaoh, you meant it for evil, but your evil desires, your evil plans are actually your undoing and the good of God's people. And it takes faith to believe this because we don't get the privilege to see that often. Moses' mom did not know that she was nursing the future deliverer of Israel. And she would be long gone by the time he was on the scene and and delivering Israel from their sins. But by faith we can trust that if God can use a kingdom like Egypt to, to further his purposes, how much more can he use the evil that's set against us? Governments around the world today are becoming increasingly more hostile to the claims of Christianity. But as, even as those governments seek to, to crush the church in places like China or Africa, it's, the, the church actually flourishes in those moments. And in fact, it's not even in spite of the, the efforts of these regimes to crush the church. It's often because of the efforts of these regimes that the church flourishes. Because why? Because often people see the bravery, they see the courage, they see the faithfulness of people who say, you know what, you, don't, you tell me not to worship God, I'm going to do it anyway. They see that and they go, there's, there's got to be something going on here in this place that's more than what, I, than what my eyes can see. Some friends of ours in Slovakia wanted to start a Christian school and in a place like Slovakia where a former uh, Soviet uh, satellite, they were, they were not fr- friends of the church, uh, they, uh, the government came to them and they said, hey, we've got this empty building we would love to give to you at a below market rate to start your Christian school. There are stories like that all over all over the world that don't make the headlines, but they nevertheless occur. And what's true on a big scale like that, friends, is, is also true on the micro scale of our own lives. I know that many of the families here uh, are here, uh, at, really at the mercy of your employers. Uh, you're here, you'll be someplace else at another time, and, uh, and maybe you were at someplace else before that, and, and, and you may be moved around. And, 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 uh, often, you... Uh, your spiritual well-being, the spiritual well-being of your kids is, is not on the top of the priority list of your company and your employer. Now, they may ask you about that, but they don't say, hey, would you like to go from here to there, and I want to make sure that you have good churches. And uh, No, they say, look, we, we've got national security in mind. We've got our bottom line to think about. You need to go here. And so they, they may not be a great spiritual friend. And yet, if God can use the kingdom of Egypt... Who was, try, who was actively trying to crush God's people, if he can use their resources for the good of God's people at this time, how much more can he use those who are maybe ambivalent 
to our spiritual well-being. You can trust him in the face even of your strongest enemies. So God uses our faltering obedience. He uses the, the strength of our enemies to build us up. There's one more thing that I want you to see in this text, and that, and that is that God uses the small and seemingly random events of our life for our good. Small and seemingly random events that we don't even see, that we don't even notice, God is at work using for our good. Where do we see that here? So after Moses is weaned, so maybe about after a year, he goes back to Pharaoh's daughter and she adopts him uh, into her family. And we're told that she is, that she is the one who actually gives Moses his name. Likely his parents would have had a name before he was three months old, but uh, the, the name Moses actually came from uh, Pharaoh's daughter. And in Egyptian, her language, the, the name Moses would have sounded like the word son, S-O-N. And so she's naming him in a, with a name that, that now she's adopted him as her son, and so that, that name would have uh, signified that to her. But she is also aware of the fact that the, his name in Hebrew uh, it sounds like the word masha, which means to draw out. And so maybe she asked Moses' mom, or maybe she asked Miriam, how do you say to draw out in your language? Because that's what she did. She drew him out of the water, which is what she says at the end of this text. And so who knows? Maybe they told her, you say it like this. And so she would have said, okay, masha, that sounds like son as well. And so Moses. Uh, but this small event, the naming of Moses by this foreign princess foreshadows him as the one who would draw Israel out of Egypt. Who, 80 years later, as I've said, who would draw Israel through the waters of the Red Sea. Who would deliver them from their, from their slavery in Egypt. But it doesn't just foreshadow what Moses would do later in his life. These events foreshadow even bigger events that are on the horizon that wouldn't occur until thousands of years later when another king, King Herod, would give a similar edict to his kingdom to, to kill every boy under two years old, when Joseph and Mary would take their son, Jesus, and flee to where else but Egypt. And then God, the Father, would draw his son out of Egypt, back through the waters of his own baptism into the promised land to deliver us from our slavery, to sin, our slavery to death. And then later in Jesus' life when the Romans would use all of their power, all of their might, all of their authority to, to take the instrument of death, the cross, and to, put, to hang him on it, God would use that instrument of death to become an instrument of life, an instrument of eternal life for all those who will trust in him. Friends, there's, there's no event that's too small in your life that God will not use to prepare you for something, will not use to teach you something, will not use to sanctify you in some way. No, no, no event too small or too random for God's wisdom to transform you. When I was 15, my dad moved with my two brothers and my stepmom to Moscow, Russia. He was an oil and gas attorney, and so he, they, he moved over there to work after the Soviet Union had fallen. He was 42 years old, and uh, it was a tough time in our family. Our, our, my uh, brothers left, and 
uh, it, it was not easy for us uh, to, to have our family separated at that time. And I went to live with him a few times over there during the summers, and uh, it, was, uh, it was exciting. It gave me a taste of international life and what it was like to live and work overseas. We saw them this summer. My dad and my stepdad, stepmom came, and they uh, met with our family after we had made the decision to come here. And I asked my dad, I said, hey, can you tell my kids what it was like to live in Moscow and to live and work. And it wasn't until then that, I, that he said, you know what, I was the same age as your dad, 42, when I moved overseas and brought my kids with me over there. And so we had this rich discussion that, that we, we had never, I'd never thought about, that 25 years before, God was at work preparing uh, our family for what we are doing now through the work of my dad. We didn't know it at the time. We never could see it at the time. It seemed small. It seemed random. It seemed one of the, a blip on the radar screen. But God was at work. And I know that your family has a thousand stories like that, ways that you look back and you say, I didn't even see it at the time, but God was at work here and he was at work there. And then we get to moments of today and we think, well, he must have given up because I can't see what he's doing now. But I want you to write those moments down. I want you to tell them to your kids. I want you to tell those stories around the dinner table so that you can look back and see God's faithfulness again and again and again, how through the small and random events of your life, he has sanctified you, brought you to where you are today, and continues to work. Because when life falls apart, maybe that's where you are now. Maybe you're facing a decision, a relationship, something something that you wonder, how can God possibly be working in this moment? You can look back to those times of faithfulness can look back to those times when he has continued to prepare you and to minister to you throughout your entire life, through the life, of the, through the life of his people throughout all of history, through Moses and ultimately through Jesus, and to find hope and find trust for those moments today. As he promises that he will not fail to work all things for good for, the, for those who love him and who are called, who are drawn out according to his purpose. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. We ask for your forgiveness for the times in which we have failed to trust you, when our souls have not been quiet, when life has seemed to fall apart, when we have complained, when we have grumbled, when we have even shaken our fist at you and said, what are you doing? Forgive us for those moments, Lord, but help us to be quiet in the midst of the storm, knowing that your power can calm it. Help us to be steady in the midst of the storms of life so that we might be a testimony to your faithfulness. And regardless of whatever uh, comes into our life, may we look to you as the one, as our anchor, who will steady us in the midst of it. May we look to the cross of Christ as as the, the chief evidence of your promise. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing to the God who's... Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.